are Air Jordans the greatest sneaker of all time? If the shoe fits, this is Warming the Bench. Welcome back to Warming the Bench. I'm your host, Dan Tran. Let's talk about Air Jordans. Not Air Jordan, but Air Jordans. The sneaker largely credited with revolutionizing what the sneaker was and what the sneaker could be. Before surprisingly signing Jordan, who was actually an Adidas fan, Nike was actually struggling. It was seen as more of a running shoe and nothing more. Before Nike released the Peter Moore designed shoe, sneakers weren't really considered more than a casual shoe built for practicality. Shoes NBA players wore on the court were either white or white with team colorways. There was actually a rule, the 51% rule, where shoes had to be 51% white in order to be a legal shoe that could be used in the NBA. And here comes Michael Jordan with his black and red beauty, setting himself apart from the rest of the NBA players right away during his rookie season. Now, this shoe was a statement. He was different. He was defiant. He was going to change the game. And you know what? The NBA fined him for it. I mean, he broke the uniform rules, right? It wasn't 51% white. Even though the shoe had Chicago Bulls colors, it still wasn't 51% white and therefore broke the rules. But that only made them more popular. Now he was anti-establishment. Every time he wore the shoe, he spit in the face of NBA administrators, and Nike would gladly pay that fine. I mean, for a black athlete to be that defined in the face of authority and perform the ridiculous scoring performances that he did, shoes were flying off the shelf. Air Jordan was built on Revolution, and it spawned an entire line of shoes that have become a brand on its own. It has transcended the court and been used in the most posh style and fashion scenes. People line up for days just to get a chance at purchasing these shoes. Some people have even died for these shoes. That's how much these shoes have affected culture. Now, the Tilt is running a bracket right now on the best Jordan shoe. It featured the 1s, the 3s, the 4s, and the 11s. And in the final round is the Air Jordan 1 versus the Air Jordan 11. The 11s are widely regarded as one of the most durable and comfortable shoes of the series. But the 1s are an iconic symbol of the man and the legend. And here to talk about that today is a sneakerhead and one of the best sports writers that we have in the country today. Joining us on the show is a return guest, actually. He's a writer for The Ringer, and he is working on a new podcast for The Ringer called The Cam Chronicles. Uh, welcome back to the show, Tyler Tynes. Tyler, how you doing, man? Y'all know the vibes. North Philly, y'all know the vibes. <laughs> so have you been able to catch uh, any of this Last Dance documentary that's been going on, dude? I mean, I've seen it. It's definitely a, a great little nostalgia trip. I, I think there's like a bunch of just issues overall with the narrative arc of the documentary, the flashback, flash forwards, the the way we're telling some of these stories from the obvious perspective of Michael Jordan. It's it's troubling, but this is you know sort of what companies like ESPN market off of. This is how sports documentaries are often made, and so if you're going into them with the idea of this being entertaining more than it being a service or even closer to the centrality of how we believe journalism should really be in acts because documentaries can also be journalism and pieces of journalism, then, you know, you might be a bit disappointed. You're giving 10 hours of television to something that 
you know, I honestly expected it to be as good as the OJ documentary that Ezra did. And so it's tough. It's not like I'm not having fun, but I wonder how successful this project would be if we weren't all in quarantine right now. We had other things to do and watch. And so it's fun. You know, the episodes are enjoyable. I don't know if I'm ever going to watch it again after these 10 episodes, though. You talk about the entertaining factor about Michael Jordan. We cannot deny that. You're right. So of all the stories that have resurfaced uh, through this documentary, what's your favorite petty MJ moment? I mean, he kept Isaiah off the dream team. Michael will say that he didn't specifically, explicitly ask for Isaiah to be off the dream team. But Michael don't got to ask. Dude, you know he asked for, for Isaiah to be ask. off the team, man. Well, you know, I, no, I believe Mike. I believe you said he didn't have to ask for Isaiah to be off the team. When Isaiah has fought Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Scottie Pippen, Michael Jordan, and their boys with David Robinson, Charles Barkley, Carl Malone, you know, to the umpteenth here. It is wildly absurd that Isaiah Thomas is not on this team when he's arguably one of the three or four best point guards to ever live. So that was great. Retelling the Barcelona story was fantastic. Dennis Rodman going on a week-long bender in the middle of a season in Las Vegas is outrageous. There's plenty to count, but those certainly come to mind. <laughs> and uh, let's let's not forget about his just overall legacy, and that includes the sneakers that he gave to the world, the gift that he gave to the world for many people. Because we're talking about a sneaker that has transcended anything a sneaker has done before. The Air Jordans, they're a huge part of his legacy. Can you remember your first pair? You know, the Chicago Tribune asked me a similar question about a week or so ago. And it was the Jordan 6 Oreos. Those tuxedo mixed with Timberland boot monstrous creations that he gave to the world. The white and black Spurs colors with a little speckle on the bottom. Found in a Buffalo exchange for 50 bucks when I was 18 years old. You know, we didn't have that much money growing up. And so I was a kid who mostly wore bands and, and things like that. But once I was 18, 17, 18 years old, on my way to college to play sports and take in a completely different world, I mean, I need some swag, man. I need the drip. I need some floss. I read that article from the Chicago Tribune and you're talking about getting the money from your relatives and shopping for Jordans, $50 for, for Jordans. That's kind of an insane price to think about. But why Jordans? Why is Jordan so high on your sneaker list? Michael Jordan personified cool. I mean, there's not many black you know, heroes or dynamos across the, the different axes and spectrums of sports and culture that were as cool as Michael Jordan was in the late 80s to early 90s when I was growing up. And so there is no better sneaker, right? Like the Jordan 1 is the best sneaker in the world. There is no better sneaker than the, than the Jordan 1. It's the first sneaker he ever played in 1984 for a company who were kind of reluctant to have them, right? Like and Jordan almost going out of business. And almost going, like they, they were struggling. Going out of business, right? Like Michael Jordan wanted to play in Adidas, but Adidas was also struggling. Converse had Magic Johnson and Larry Bird and some others, right? Clyde Drexler was playing in Avises. And so you arguably have the greatest talent that you might come through the NBA at that time, especially. And he says, well, if I can't be with Adidas, I guess I'll be with Nike. And we want to move maybe, what was it, 300 or 400,000 in the first year, and they sold 64 million or some absurd number similar to that. And so it's iconic, not just because the greatest, arguably the greatest player who's ever lived wore these sneakers, but because they were a bridge for the black athlete to understand that they could be compensated beyond just the court. 
that there were opportunities and endorsements, that there was a marketing and a capitalistic enterprise that they could sink their teeth in that oftentimes are not even given as an opportune moment for Black people by and large. And so to be a part of the capitalist structure, to be a part of this dynastic thing that, that really had always been elusive to the Black athlete, especially for the entirety of the American historical outlook when it comes to sports and athletics, this was breathtaking. This was groundbreaking. Like no one had ever done what Michael Jordan had done. And nobody wanted to play no boo-boo ass Converse's either. Hey, and so you got, you got to choose your them, weapon with Converse, though, man. <laughs> if you if you if you give them, you you gave us another option. And it's whole like wildfire. You know, Jordan's. I think you know Mike Sykes at, at For the Win had this in one of his sneaker newsletters. You know, J- the Jordan brand has seen a forty percent increase not only because of the the Last Dance, but also because we're in quarantine. That's what it is. You think about the the comparison between LeBron and and Michael Jordan. LeBron ain't never made a sneaker like Michael Jordan has. That's important. As big of a basketball player as LeBron James is and probably will be remembered for, he never came out with something that could, that totally changed the game, right? That was Michael Jordan. He was the pioneer when it came to that. And look, this isn't to say LeBron doesn't have good sneakers. I own LeBron's. LeBron has plenty of good sneakers. Threes are good. You know, seven slap. Like, there's plenty of eights that are good. But LeBron has never made a sneaker like Michael Jordan, right? The only thing that we've seen that's come close is Kobe Bryant's sneakers. The Kobe's were always great. And the Kobe's were great because Kobe had a marketing appeal outside of basketball that was more connected to black culture in a way that LeBron didn't, didn't have at the moment when he sold sneakers, right? Like when you were playing in Kobe's, you could just take in, you know, if you had the sneakers with like Michael Jordan, you could be like Mike. If you had the sneakers like Kobe Bryant, you could yell Kobe from any point of the asphalt and hope that it would go in. With LeBron James's sneakers, while they're still great and while they're still marketable, they're smidge too expensive in the time period of when they came out. And also, I don't have the same connective tissue culturally to LeBron to sell those sneakers the same way I would sell Kobe's or Jordan's. Yeah. Would you say that, especially with the airships and the black colorway with the red on them and breaking the 51% rule with the NBA, do you think it's that sort of rebelliousness that a lot of uh, people can connect to? I don't know. I can only speak for myself. And the thing I can speak for is that again, Michael Jordan was the first marketable basketball player. Like David Stern's baby had always been to turn the NBA into a global game. He wouldn't have been able to do that without Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan, just by being a cultural figure, forget about the fact that Michael Jordan was actively a piece of shit. Forget about the fact that Michael Jordan was actively gambling a lot of his money away with a, with a, with a buddy named Slim Bouye. All right. Like, let's just forget about that for a second. It's not to say they're not intertwined. It's to say put those to the left for a second. Michael Jordan, by making one sneaker, changed the global economy of how we consider the NBA. It went from being a white man's league in the 60s and 70s to a black-dominated enterprise in the 80s that the NBA sold off of race wars between Magic Johnson and Larry Bird and Isaiah Thomas to then having a figure like Michael Jordan who defied the sky and he made his own sneaker. It wasn't that somebody else gave him something to play in. He said, here is what I'm going to play in. And so in a sense, yes, there might be the rebellious nature of that because when Michael Jordan jumps, he defies the sky. But the opposite end of that also is that there had never been anything like that. So much so that we've seen last year, the NBA had to change their sneaker rules again because the sneaker wars are just too important to 
the culture of what basketball represents. And now you see in the modern era, a guy like Kyrie Irving, who has his own sneaker line under Nike, or a guy like Paul George has his own sneaker line under Nike, they're making a bunch of different outrageous colorways and schemes that people are still going to buy. And so that's the essence of it. Like, sneakers aren't just things you wear. They're a part of art. And you got to get unique with the things that you're going to wear. And nobody symbolized that more than Michael Jordan. Yeah, you're talking about uh, it's, it's more than basketball. It's art. It's part of the culture. What is sneaker culture exactly? Uh, I mean, it depends on what your culture is. I mean, the, the, the way these sneakers, and it starts with the Jordan one, obviously. It just gave something back to blackness in a way that I don't think Michael Jordan would ever speak on or even elucidate to a point that was even refreshing or engaging. But that sneaker just changed what people wore. It changed how people connected with a game that had always been ours to a certain point. But had never been ours on the main stage. Once Michael Jordan gets there in 1984, once he becomes the best player in the world by 1990, 1991, inarguably, right, you have a sneaker, you have a product, you have a piece of a culture that has always been denied in high definition on the main screens across sports and culture. It's always been the moral scoreboard of America for so long. They now have a status symbol. It's the Jordans right there. In every color you want, in every model you want, in every colorway you want. And that opened the door and the floodgates to what other players, Kobe, LeBron, Serena, were able to do with their own creativity, specifically and it happened to be under one brand, Nike. Now you see the same thing with Dame Lillard and his sneaker brand under a uh, sneaker line under Adidas. Same thing with Kanye with his sneaker line under Adidas. And so it opens the floodgates to a level of creativity and specifically a capture of a capitalistic culture that was not available before to black people, black superstars across culture. And so that's the thing of culture to me is that obviously when I put on Jordans, I can feel like Mike Jordan, but also I can feel like I have something that is inherently mine that maybe somebody else doesn't have. And if they do that, we can share in the experience it took to get them because at first these were available to everyone. Now they're elusive. Now it's a hunt. Now it's how cheap can I get them for? How much am I willing to spend? And if I'm not, how many other pairs can I get? And how, and how far have you gone to get a pair of Jordans that you've really wanted? Um, um, Give me the R-rated version. I, I want to hear how far, um, how, like what was the intensity of this love of the Jordan uh, shoe? I mean, I'm, I'm looking at them now. I'm looking at my collection now <laughs> in my room. There's a certain amount of money you can spend on these things, you know, that, that can go up to 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 bucks, 10,000 bucks, 30,000 bucks, depending on what you're looking at. Plenty of those things happen, right? Then it's just, am I going to run all around Brooklyn for an entire day to find something nobody else has for a price that nobody else could have gotten? And they're still authentic. I had plenty of days like that. Or the days where, you know, you might have just paid money on rent, but the Jordan 1 game Royals are under 300 bucks at your local brick and mortar, right? It's, it's things like that. Or you're at an AAU event and you see Derek Jones, who plays for the Heat now, balling out in some cherry red 11 lows. And, the next, and then you try to find how you can get those same sneakers. Nobody else is wearing those. And I still got those in my collection. And so it, it's stuff like that. It's stuff like that. You just, it's more strenuous and, and stress inducing than it is like, am I about to fight a dude 
<laughs> over, over 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 these savvies. And w- you would know? you? And would you? I ain't fight. I'm grown. Yeah. So, what would you say your personal favorite Air Jordan shoe is? That I own? Uh, no, just in general. What's the one? I mean, there's there's nothing better than the one. I mean, you've got your classics. It's the one. It's the seven. It's the three. The four. The eleven. Uh, the thirteens. You know, you, the tens too. I love the tens. You know, but you, you can't get more classic than that. But for me, it's the one. The one started it all. The one. The Chicago one still one of the most elusive sneakers. One of the biggest grails on the on the market. You know, the last dance hasn't helped anybody trying not to spend nine hundred bucks on these sneakers. Now they're averaging out around sixteen hundred bucks for the sneaker, and so. It's definitely the Jordan One, man. Jordan One Chicago. Yeah, uh, the Jordan One Chicago. What what colorway is that? The white and reds. The the red, white, and blacks. The ones he wore when he went back to Madison Square Garden in nineteen ninety seven during the last dance and bopped them boys for like sixty points when his feet was bleeding. <laughs> I mean, how how bad do you have to be to be the Knicks and just have like a hobbled Jordan and still have a hobbled Jordan like knock sixty on you? <laughs> Knicks the worst damn franchise I've ever seen in my life. So <laughs> The Knicks are a disease. <laughs> Not going to be anything special until they fire Jim Dola. Hey, uh, I think I think everybody in New York City agrees with you in the, on that front, at least. <laughs> all right, we actually ran a little bit of a little mini bracket on the tilt, uh, where we put all of the the Air Jordans that are favorites of people, and so we settled on four different shoes. It's the ones, the threes, the fours, and the elevens. What do you think about that selection? I mean, that's fine. That sounds right. The ones and the elevens have to be there. One of one one of the threes and the fours have to be there. I, I don't care which one you pick. One of them have to be there. I, I'm not huge on threes. I, I'm I'm big on fours. One of those got to be there probably out of the threes or the fours, and then you can make an argument for the sixes, the sevens, the tens, or the thirteens. People might say the eights. I really love the sevens. I really love the thirteens, and so it, it's somewhere in there. The two should have been the first thing fucking shot to the moon. No. <laughs> No, well, no one's out here rocking twos. If, they're, if you're rocking twos, you're basically rocking Team Jordans, and you basically mean you don't got nothing to talk about unless you're my uncle. <laughs> All right, so when you think about – well, we already talked about the ones. So when you think about the threes, like what do you what, – what's the first thing that comes to mind? So the first thing that comes to mind for me is it's that 1988 dunk contest shoes, the, the Jordan 3 white cements that he played in that are still a little elusive to this day and can, can kind of run you depending on, you know, where you're looking at. But when he makes that iconic jump, the one-handed jump from the foul line, dog, that's it. Like, you don't got to tell me nothing else. Like, that's it right there. Those are the Jordan 3s. So uh, there's there's nothing else I can think of. And, and the 3s, I'm not going to say they're, they're a limited design or, you know, kind of outlook, but, like, there's not many pairs of 3s you need. The fire red 3s that came out, big slap, the, the fire red cement ones, the black cements and the white cements. You really don't need any other 3s than that. Maybe the animal print 3s that just came out that Chris Paul was wearing, those are kind of fires to have something freaky in the closet that you wear maybe two, three times a year, four times a year, but you don't need too many threes, so I'm not always huge on threes. I think the fours have a little bit more versatility, but when I think of the threes, I think of that 1988 dunk contest when he jumps from the foul line. There's uh, just, yeah. Better. yeah, who can forget that? That crazy dunk where he goes from the foul line, you're right. And you mentioned the fours. Like, What, what about the fours intrigue you? The fours, to me, they, there's just so much more. There's a little bit more versatile as we kind of come to the resale market and the retroing and re- remaking of these sneakers. The fours are just 
there's just so much more to do with them. Like just so much more to do with them. I think Tinker Hatfield were the ones who made them and you just had so many options. You can make bread fours. You can make like the Tinker fours. You can make, uh, there was a women's model that dropped the mushroom fours that just came out that are beautiful sneakers. You got the cool gray fours, one of my favorite sneakers in my collection. And it's just, it's perfect. And so he wore the bread fours when he beat down trash ass Craig Elo in the famous shot against the, the Cleveland Cavaliers. And so when you see him jumping up and down and, and just, you know, pumping his fist in the air, he wore those fours. And so what was that? Uh, February 1989, maybe that's when they released. And so they were 110 bucks when they came out. Like the, the bread fours are another one of those iconic Jordan sneakers, right? Like just, uh, just, just beautiful. I mean, he dunked over Patrick Ewing like a bunch of times in these, so it's just perfect. <laughs> I mean, you can't get you can't get any more iconic than the shot when he jumps up, fist pumps, and you just see that shoe, that shoe just like right there, right? It's right there, and the other side of it too is just like, who the fuck puts Craig Elo instead of Ron Harper? And Ron Harper's prime before he blew his knee out. He was oh, giving him, he was giving him work too. Michael Jordan consistently said to the press that he hated playing Ron Harper, a dude who would end up becoming one of his teammates. Ron Harper was averaging like 22 a game back then, blows his knee out and became, he becomes basically like a, you know, like a, like a 10 point, 15 point kind of guy, right? Like he's not that good anymore, but it's clear that he still got the moves. So he's wearing a massive like knee sleeve or knee brace during a bunch of games. And so it, it just, I mean, the, the only thing you should consider is that shot. I mean, he had 42 points before he hit that shot. It's ridiculous that you don't put Ron Harper on Michael Jordan during that off that inbound. No, yeah, I, I, I'm, I think we all kind of were Ron Harper during the last dance where he's like, I right, fuck this bullshit because <laughs> he's right. Like Ron Harper was the guy that was giving Michael Jordan work. He hated getting guarded by Ron Harper, but you know why not put Craig Elo on him for no apparent freaking reason? Who was the coach of that of that Cleveland uh, that Cleveland team? I don't remember that 89 coach. I just know <laughs> that coach should have been fired. <laughs> Immediately. All right. So with those four shoes, the matchups already sussed out. One's obviously won the first round and so did the 11s. Now, breaking down the ones versus the 11s matchup, what what do you see in that comparing the one versus the 11s? I mean, again, that's that's something where it's like, you talk about the Jordan 11 and... The, the one of the 11 arguably is two most iconic shoes. The Concord 11s, especially another Tinker Hatfield design from 95. What, what, I mean, just every time they re-release the Concords, to this day, the Concords absolutely sell out. They absolutely slap. It's just fantastic. And the thing about the Concords at the time is that they only lasted two games because the colorway didn't abide by legal rules. And so, you know, he would be in Space Jam in the 11s, right? Like, in the night, was it the San Antonio All-Star game of the 90s? He played in the Columbia 11s. Some of his most iconic moments came in the 11s, and they were only $125 in November 1995 when these came out. Like, these were a perfect sneaker to a certain point. And so, it took them five years to retro it, but the 11s are arguably his best sneaker, but to me, the ones are. And so, if the ones beat out the 11s that makes sense the ones are the best sneaker he has <laughs> i didn't really know quite the impact of the 11s until i started doing a little more research on it but a lot of people say it's the most comfortable jordan shoe would you agree with that assessment i don't know dog 
Levens, he felt like fucking bricks. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could curb stomp them. You could curb stomp, uh, stomp somebody in them. I mean, look, man, I fuck with the ones. Like the way, I mean, there's there's people who know me will know, man. I got a bunch of pairs of ones. Like there's, I, I gotta add a few more pairs of, of 11s to my collection because I've just been going heavy on ones, but. I don't. I don't see a reason anyone needs to wear a sneaker that's outside of the Jordan ones. Honestly, they're just so perfect. Looking at your closet right now, how many ones do you have? At least ten pairs of ones. Jeez, man. <laughs> at least ten pairs of ones. Jeez. <laughs> at least ten pairs of ones. It ain't five pairs, but it's either ten or a little bit under ten. And how many of those were gotten during quarantine? Like two. <laughs> We were talking about Jordan shoes, talking about Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan, known as the greatest player of all time by many, still known as the greatest player by many. Air Jordan's greatest shoe of all time, considered by a lot of people, including you. What was the thing that made the Air Jordans so successful more? The shoe themselves or Jordan's play? Michael Jordan would consistently tell you that there would be no Jordans without Michael Jordan. Like if he, he, he said, obviously in the documentary, you know, if he was scoring three, four points a game, he had no sneaker. But the reality of it was that like Jordans were going to happen no matter what. David Falk set him up, you know, to the point in 1984 where, you know, we were going to get this sneaker. And so it, it's a, it's a tough thing because so many of the sneakers that you have, you buy them because they're a connection to a shot, to a moment, to a feeling. But then so many others, like the shoe now in the modern era is big enough where there's so many different colorways that you just want. You just want to have. And so I don't begrudge anybody for just getting the sneaker because the sneaker is clean. The sneakers are clean, right? But at the same time, so much of, especially my collection, is tied to what he did. The Jordan 10 double nickels, so the Chicago Bull Jordan 10 that came out in 2012 and also came out in 2000 and I think they remade them in 2018 or so, maybe 17. Put the 45 on the side of one of them. They had they had them clean like Jordan did when he made his return in the 45 jersey. Oh, I own those. And I own those because Michael Jordan came back from hell from a shitty baseball team, put 45 on after his daddy died, and he gave the Knicks 55 points in their own crib. That's the other thing. So many of these shots and so many of these moments happened against the Knicks. Which <laughs> I mean, we're talking about a baseball body, too, that put 55. A baseball body. 55 against the Knicks. That's crazy. This trash-ass Patrick Ewing. <laughs> Ending off this Air Jordan discussion, is there any other shoe that you think will top the legacy of the Jordan? No. No. Because what other shoe has tried? What other shoe has been good enough? Right. And the other side of this also is Michael Jordan still making sneakers. We're still retroing Jordans. And every time you retro a Jordan, they haven't retroed. Or every time you put out a Jordan that makes absolutely no sense how they put the colorway together. Or every time they make a Jordan one that feels elusive or you see somebody with some shit that you don't have, you go and buy it. There's not another sneaker on the market that will ever do that. The Yeezys have come kind of close. but They've made too many pairs of them that don't look great right like the lebrons are great sneakers but there's not enough lebron iconic moments tied to those sneakers with the same type of lore that might make us want to buy those sneakers and also they look like boots i don't want to keep buying them sneakers right the kds were a clean version of the sneaker probably the best sneaker nike's put out to me of a player after michael jordan but the problem with the kds is that once you got past like 10 they kind of sucked or they were just similar models 
nothing anyone has made in the in the entire century so far has surpassed the what 34 sneakers that Michael Jordan made and all the colorways and retros that come with them. And to be honest with you, you don't even gotta give me none past 15. Like you can give me the 20, but other than that, I don't really need them. And so that's the thing I'm saying is nothing can eclipse the Jordan because nobody has ever been as good. Plus, no one has ever come with as good lore. Plus, no one has ever been that dominant in the way that he was. LeBron James could arguably be the best player in NBA history. I think there's a very good argument for that, right? Probably a better argument for that than Michael Jordan's because who knows how Michael Jordan's small 666 ass would compare in the modern NBA, right? But the problem with that is that don't nobody want to wear a basketball studio of a six foot eight dude who's two hundred seventy five pounds. You you don't you don't feel connected to somebody like that, Tyler? Like LeBron is great. I love LeBron as a basketball player. He's phenomenal. He can do anything on a basketball court, much more than what Michael Jordan can do. The problem though is I don't want to wear somebody six foot eight basketball boot of a sneaker. I don't need that. <laughs> Where am I going in LeBron's? Where am I going? You're, you're not going Where to the club? You're not going to the club with LeBron's? Where am I going in LeBron's besides the grocery store? <laughs> Tell me. I ain't going to no club with no LeBron's on. I'm going to like a sucker. All right? <laughs> I'm going like to like a chump. Okay? That's the issue. Jordans have so much cross-cultural appeal. And if I really, you know, was an asshole and wanted to put on some Jordan 1s and go to a wedding, I could probably figure it out. Right? Like, like we're not making LeBrons into football cleats. We're not making LeBrons into baseball cleats. LeBron don't own, don't got his name or iconography on soccer teams. College football teams are not putting LeBron's face on their helmets. This is the thing, man. Nobody will ever catch Jordan. It doesn't matter what the sales look like. It doesn't matter what the stocks look like. It doesn't matter how good the brand is doing. It doesn't matter if Michael Jordan jumps off a cliff. Nothing will surpass the Jordan brand because no one has ever had the mystique, the appeal, the reproach, the entire combination of assets that make an athlete into just an icon of so many different ways than Michael Jordan. Closest thing we had was Kobe Bryant, right? But even them Kobe's was kind of trash. They started making them into high heeled boots. Plenty of Kobe's that slap. Plenty of Kobe's that slap. Probably more Kobe's that slapped than LeBron's. Actually, ain't no problem. More Kobe's that slapped than LeBron's. But again, once you once you change this, like Kobe nines with some boots, I don't want them. Then I could deal with them. But even before Kobe died, they was retroing basically to Kobe fours to make out protos, and those things was big time slapping. So that's what I'm saying. Look at the market now. We've retro LeBron threes. They don't think they're still on shelves. <laughs> so, like, what are we talking about? And again, I don't think LeBron makes bad sneakers. I think I have LeBron sneakers. I like them a lot. I have plans to buy more. We're just talking about the fact that when you retro a Kobe sneaker, pre-death, those sneakers were going for 300, 400, 500 on the resale market. They're about to bring back out the Kobe Grinch that he played in the Austin in a Christmas game with. Those are going to sell out immediately, right? LeBron doesn't have a sneaker that can do that. He don't. He don't. And if he do, cool. Kobe probably got like five more pairs of that. 
That's the thing. If I'm looking at the sneakers right now, just under Nike, it's probably Jordans, then Kobe's, then LeBron's. Right, as far as just like the appeal to sell value. If I'm talking about things that I probably want, it's likely Jordan's in a mix between Kobe and K in the early KD copies. And then you've got maybe some Kyrie twos, a pair or two of the PG fours and PG threes, and LeBron's all in the same bracket. I mean, that's that's probably not what he wants for his sneaker. I gotcha. Nothing will ever surpass the Michael Jordan shoe line. I don't I don't think and you're right. I don't think that anybody will really have that mystique about him. I, I think that's the thing that really separates Michael Jordan from everybody else is the legend has actually grown bigger than the man himself, you know? That's a hard thing to do, especially with Michael Jordan. That's the thing about legend building is that once you give too much of your legend up to the public, we don't have any mystique anymore. This isn't to say that athletes shouldn't talk. This isn't to say that athletes shouldn't speak out. This isn't to say that you know, athletes should not be at a point where, you know, they can be considered as cultural icons because that's what they are, right? And, and the general pathos of what these different franchises allow themselves to be in different cities would service the understanding of that they are community leaders. And so this is not to say that, like, more athletes should be reclusive like Kobe and like Jordan were. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying, though, is that when you give up too much of the myth, well, the myth dies. If I need to know anything about LeBron James, I can Google search it at this point. When Michael Jordan was still playing basketball, obviously besides the computer aspect, you couldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> All you had was like the Jordan rules. That was it, right? Like, like the mystique of Michael Jordan, parts of Michael Jordan's past and his current present are still things that are elusive to the average American. LeBron James, I can turn on the shop. It's not to say somebody's approach is different. It's not to say people shouldn't make their money however they want to. It's to say that once there's not enough of the myth and the myth can die, or you can make strong feelings or opinions about somebody to the point that it stops you from buying sneakers, well, you got an issue. We've been talking about Jordan and his sneakers, but let's talk about something that you're going to be doing pretty soon, actually, which is the Cam Chronicles. Tell me a little bit more about that project of yours, Tyler. We spent the past year at the Ringer sort of devising an idea and following around how we're going to cover Cam Newton. And so many of us um, were just baffled. Cam Newton is a similar athlete in the, in the ilk of LeBron and Michael and, and the fact that we have a recluse who also feels transparent, who also feels approachable, who also had an immense level of talent that we've never seen before in the NFL and still have not seen in the NFL, right? Record-breaking talent to the point where his first two games as a rookie, he's breaking <laughs> every record you can as a rookie thrower. And so the question was, because the writing was obviously on the wall with Cam Newton, it, didn't, it wasn't clear that he was going to be a Carolina Panther in 2020, which now he's, we know he's not. The question was, how do you cover him? How do you tell a story about Cam Newton that he's refused to give to the rest of the world for 10 years? I guess you just start following him. And so that's what we did. We went from Charlotte to, you know, Auburn to Gainesville to Blinn in Brenham, Texas, to <clears throat> Newton, Georgia, where he goes to church with his father as a pastor. We've been all over the all over the American South trying to figure out who this guy is to give you a story you've never heard before. And I'm fairly certain we're going to give you something you've never heard before. So, yeah. And like, you don't have to go too much into it, but what was what were some of the most surprising things that you learned about Cam while you're working on this? Things that you didn't know before because I'm, I'm sure that you've read up a lot about cam 
I think the thing that I would think about Cam Newton is that a lot of people don't think that Cam Newton is authentic. A lot of people don't think that Cam Newton is the guy that we see on Sundays in press conferences, et cetera. A lot of people think that we've gotten a new Cam Newton since 2016 after he lost in the Super Bowl. And the thing that I've learned about Cam Newton that I've consistently said is that you're getting the Cam Newton that you think you're getting. This is authentic. This is who he is. And it goes back to his roots. It goes back to that church in Newton, Georgia. It goes back to that constituency that his father preaches to, right? That's who he is. He's not putting on no front. He's not trying to be nobody else. He's who he is. And when that gets him in trouble, because there's some problems with that, he apologizes and he tries to be better for his kids. But he's not like retracing those steps. Like he's he's not doing anything different. And he will stand by all of that. I promise you. He's who he is. And maybe that's a part of the reason why he's not playing the NFL right now. Yeah, and talk about a little bit about that because I think it is absolutely ludicrous that nobody has signed him yet. So you talk about maybe why he didn't hasn't been signed by an NFL team. Why don't you think that he's been signed? I think it's a complicated answer. Part of this is race because part of everything is racing, racism, the extension of that, right? And so there are plenty of franchises that are not going to give Cam Newton a job because he is an audacious, cocky, black quarterback that does not play football in the way that we have always thought football should be played by people who do not look like Cam Newton. That's reason one. And reason one enough between anecdotal evidence, historical evidence, and actual facts right now and back then, since football has existed in America, that still stops teams from taking black quarterbacks. A piece of this is genuine concern with how Cam's personality would fit in locker rooms. There's plenty of teams who have a way and an order about going through business. A piece of that being muscular Christianity, a piece of that being the old regime of what makes football go to grind men into dust. And a lot of them believe that the way that they should run an organization does not include somebody that either looks like Cam Newton or that acts like Cam Newton. Okay. There are less starting quarterback jobs that people would honestly say are up for grabs at this moment. There's not many teams that were looking into a starting quarterback outside of at the beginning of the offseason. Chicago, maybe Jacksonville, maybe the Raiders, the Chargers, the, to a point, the Giants in, in Buffalo, right? Like there's not many teams who would tell you with certainty that they needed a quarterback, whether we believe that they needed a quarterback or not. So there's not that many starting quarterback jobs up for grabs either. Okay. Then you have the global pandemic that's going on. You have somebody like Cam Newton who has been hit more times in the pocket than anybody else who's ever played football in 10 years. He's broken. He's had a list Frank injury. He sprained some ankles. He's had some hairline fractures to his ribs. He's gotten in a near fatal car accident that almost broke his spine. The guy's more hurt than anybody I've ever seen play the position. And so there are plenty of teams who I'm sure are like, why would we take a gamble on a dude who we cannot with our own eyeballs assess whether he's healthy or not? I've seen Cam Newton play football. He's healthy. I can promise you that. Or at least he looks it. He's slinging the ball. He's spinning the ball. He looks great. There's a bit of that too, right? Where so many people between one or four of those distinctions might think that it's too much of a gamble right now to take Cam Newton. I think that's mostly fine. I think people are still making a massive mistake. And I don't think there's an argument for anyone in the NFL for why they should not have taken a flyer on Cam Newton. There's no argument. There's not one argument for all 32 teams to have not taken Cam Newton. Because either he's good when your quarterback gets hurt and you flip him for something, or he's better than the quarterback you got, and now you got a new starter for a few years. Yeah. There's no reason 
why he should not have been taking a gamble on. Now, here's the last part of it. Cam Newton don't want to be no backup quarterback. And Cam Newton shouldn't be no backup quarterback, right? Like, the talent is undeniable to the point where you can suggest that he's probably better as a starting quarterback when healthy than most of the starting quarterbacks in the NFL. Like, every other team you could name, he is probably a better option for you at starting quarterback than the average option for you at starting quarterback. If you were Minnesota, would you rather have Kirk Cousins than Cam Newton? If you are Chicago, would you rather have Mitch Trubisky or Nick Foles than Cam Newton? If you're Jacksonville, would you rather have Gardner Minshew? If you're the Raiders, would you rather have Derek Carr? If you're the Patriots, would you rather have Jared Steedham? And we can play this game on and on and on and on and on, right? There's going to be five to seven, ten tops quarterbacks who you could look and say, okay, I'd rather have them. Russell Wilson, Patrick Mahomes, maybe Deshaun Watson, Lamar Jackson, maybe Carson Wentz, even maybe Dak Prescott, right? This game six. There's no argument why the majority of the NFL is not taking a flyer on this guy. And if he gets a chance to play football again, he's going to torch this league. That's how he's built. That's what he's always going back to. That's his North Star. Every time there has been a problem in Cam Newton's life, he has rose like a phoenix and bounced back in a way that none of us can ever imagine. We thought we, he was never going to play football again when he left Florida. Okay, he became arguably the best player in college football history when he went to Auburn. Well, <laughs> think about who you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Tyler, uh, I will let you go. I know you have plenty of things to do, especially with this podcast, but thank you for taking time out of your schedule and uh, showing up on this podcast again. Yeah, you know, I already know the vibes. <laughs> All right, I'll see you back in New York, man. Well, that does it for this podcast. Thank you again to Tyler Tynes for coming on to talk about The Last Dance, Air Jordans, Cam Newton, and thank you for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Warming the Bench on iTunes and follow us on Spotify. Also, follow us on Twitter at Tilt Sports and be on the lookout for other projects on the Tilt's YouTube channel. This is Warming the Bench with Daniel Tran, signing off.